This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Fiona Lowe, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. You've been here before. I have, once before. Yeah, and you spoke to Caroline Overington. I did. We chatted about home fires. Yes. She um, she sits in the chair for me occasionally when I'm travelling and I know people love her. Um, Fiona has had a very varied career. Uh, you've been a midwife, a sexual health counsellor and a family support worker, all of which are ideal careers for an author who writes novels about family and relationship. Well, I guess, too, you would hear so many stories, wouldn't you, as a counsellor? I do. You hear a lot of stories. Do you still do that work? Uh, not anymore. I'm no. writing full-time. Uh, good. <laughs> That's where you want to be, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fiona spent her early years in Papua New Guinea with no television, so she found entertaining through reading. This set up a lifelong love of books. One of her first teenage rebellions was refusing to go on a hike with her parents because she was halfway through Gone with the Wind. i got to say, I mean, of course I'd be the same. One, I don't like Hythe King. And two, I think that's a great book. <laughs> it was an excellent book. Atlanta was burning and mum and dad wanted to go to Tongue Point. It wasn't happening. No. No, so you stayed. Although Fiona often rewrote the ending of books in her head, it was the birth of her first child that prompted her to write her first novel. She is the recipient of the prestigious USA Rita Award and the Australian Ruby Award. Fiona's books are set in small country towns and feature real people facing tough choices and explore how family ties impact on their decisions. Her latest novel, Just an Ordinary Family, deals with the secrets that each family has and the fallout when those secrets are revealed. When Fiona is not writing stories, she's a wife, a mother of two sons, a volunteer in her community, guardian of eight, 80 rose bushes, that's a lot of work, <laughs> slave to a cat and is often found collapsed on the couch with wine. I mean, I often, people say that cats are independent, but they're not really, are they? Oh, well, they're I'm independent. A dog oh, well, they're independent, but they demand a lot. Their attention when they wish it. You know, you may have decided you're sitting down on the couch and the cat deigns not to join yeah. you, but when the cat wants you to sit on the couch, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you're not ready. I guess they rule the roost. If they you do like. a little bit. Yeah. Um, a really big career. I mean, tell me, how many books are we up to? 30-something, but this is my fourth big general fiction novel. Wow, congratulations. Yeah. Um, tell me about your, firstly, um, your life uh, really in the medical profession as a midwife, a sexual health counsellor and a family support worker. Talk to me about that first. I started off as a general nurse yep. and then I went into midwifery. Can I just say um, I've been... Um, near hospitals lately because I have a few sick people around me. And, um, 
you know, I've always had great empathy for uh, nurses, um, but it's newfound <laughs> in the last uh, few months because of the high demand. Like there's just so much work that goes on in those hospitals. So you're doing all the technical, practical stuff and then you have to do the people's stuff as well. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, but it's, it's co-joined. You don't separate the no. person from so I mean I know that's I, like writing yeah the technical right. and the story exactly, is co-joined exactly right so I, I did general nursing and then I decided that um, I'd like to do midwifery I mean I loved accident and emergency um, but yeah I did mid which I loved but by the I got to the end of midwifery and realised that um, shift work was starting to wear me down and then how many babies did you did I deliver yeah. oh I don't know probably forty yeah over. Wow period of three you have to deliver 20 to be registered wow. and then I went straight back to university and worked um part-time yeah and I um I did uh, community health I did yeah. a graduate diploma in community health um and that pitched me into community health where I was everything yeah. so you know some some days I was on the streets with the homeless kids. Other days I was having a lovely time um, with new mums groups, uh, very middle-class women. Other times I was having new mums groups with um, teenage women. Mm. I used to, I was qualified to take pap tests and do breast checks and so I um, screened the under-screened women. So I would have an interpreter, I would have a massage table and a portable steriliser and we'd go out to the footy club rooms in these communities with women and the interpreter for women who would never normally seek mm. to have um, pap tests. So I did all sorts of different things mm. and slowly over time it became very women's health and that was when I started all the sexual health stuff and I taught in schools and I worked with teenage girls for many, many years and then I got a job which I was able to balance off with the children that was um, online. It was in the early days of the internet and um, a feminine hygiene company, Libra, had started a website and they had a facility to ask girls to ask questions. Well, they didn't think anyone would ask and suddenly they started asking idea. questions. And yeah. Because it's anonymous in a way, isn't yeah. it? And absolutely. And I'd been um, living in the United States and I got off the plane and my parents picked us up and they said, oh, someone has rung about it. There's a job for you. I'm like, what? And it started off as this tiny little three hours a week and it, it exploded into about 30 hours by the end. And, Just uh, answering questions. Teenage girls are obsessed about, about 25 things. And the only thing that really changed over the 13 years that I did that job was there was a rise in self-harm and there was a rise in alcohol abuse mm. for girls. But the, all the other stuff about is my body normal, I've got one breast bigger than the other, mm. you know, stuff about periods and all that sort of stuff hasn't changed. And um, actually in uh, just an ordinary family, I've channeled all that puberty stuff that, that girls um, ask questions about in into one section of the book. So it's really interesting. Um I, I saw something the other day about women, you know, I don't know, in their forties talking about, you know, being comfortable in your own skin. And I thought it's the wisdom of forty. I mean you can say that to a teenager three hundred times, but that's just how you're going to feel when you're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, aren't you? Oh, and some women never yeah. never well, come to wow. terms and accept their body, they. I want to just fight touch it. a bit on self-harming. Mm. I mean, it, which is kind of alien to me. I mean, it's it seems quite new, and I didn't grow up with it. Where do you think that comes from? I think people have always self-harmed. It's just you do, that right. um, 
it's a we didn't know we didn't it. know about it. It was less talked about. I mean, the thing about um, mental health issues and people saying we need to do more, we need to be more open about mental health. Well, gosh, if you look back twenty five years, compare it to where we are now, mm. we've come an awfully long way. I'm not saying that we don't have more to come. It can uh, self harm arises when someone is in greater emotional distress, mm. and they can't deal with that. And it's easier to deal with a physical pain mm. because that block, it's a literally, the physical so, pain blocks out the emotional pain for that short period of time. So they often feel better and they, so they it's tend a distraction to, yeah, so they tend to cut themselves on their yeah. thighs or their, their arms yeah. and then they're the girls that are always covered, you know, yeah. hot day, they've got this, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, it is a, um. They're distressed and they need um, they need help. Um, so I can imagine so many stories out there. So how is it then that you came to writing? Because truly, I'd have thought you you would have been emotionally drained at the time. <laughs> were you? I am. Um, I took a very. I had seven years of infertility. It took a very long time to have our child, first child, and. Um, I was at home with him and I was listening to the radio and I was wondering about, I had to go back to work, I was wondering about juggling what I was going to do. And I heard an interview on the radio about writing books and I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll write a book and then I can stay at home. Not really. What happened was I was, I come from a long line of letter writers. Yeah. My grandmother was from the United Kingdom and she came out in the late 20s and married my Australian grandfather and wrote home. And then my mother um, was expected to write when we lived every Sunday afternoon in Papua New Guinea. She'd haul out the typewriter and she'd write home. When we took off on Europe, we had to write aerograms. So, and I kept a few diaries and I journaled and people would read my letters from overseas and say, you know, you ought to write a book. And I'm like, you know, but it just literally, so it's very embarrassing that didn't come from a super creative place at that point that it was like, oh, maybe this is something I can do. And you know nothing, you know nothing. So you don't realise how hard it is to crack a publishing contract. And, you know, from, from the first time I penned anything and I didn't even know how to format a Word document at that point and we'd only had a computer in a very short space of time um, to when I um, sold was 10 years. Of course, I sent off the man, the first three chapters of the manuscript and then my husband came home that night and said, there's this job in America and three and a half weeks later we were over there. So I lost, I, we didn't have a computer or anything. It took me, you know, six to eight months before I started writing again. So and you had, you, you had a baby at that stage? Yeah, we went over with a baby. Where did you go? We went to Wisconsin in the Midwest, up to our eyeballs in snow. Uh, And it was a wonderful time. And I was a non-resident alien without a work permit. So I was at home with a baby and I... I had the time when the baby slept, I wrote. Um, and then as the baby got a bit older, went off to childcare for half a day and I wrote. So I I have always appro- I approached it as a job. It wasn't just like, oh, this is a hobby. This is like there was a means to an end. I, mm. um, so I, I went off to writing class, you know, workshops and writing classes and joined a writing group. And Talk to me about the genre. Like did you have a sense of when you were writing the story, did you have a sense of the genre Well, then? yeah, I was actually targeting Mills and Boone medical romance. Oh, you were? Okay. Because um, – they always said, write what you know. Yes. And although I had not read very many romances, I mean, I'd read Pride and Prejudice, but I hadn't, I think I'd read two Mills and Boone in my life when I heard this guy on the radio. But the, when I was 30, as a joke, someone gave me this Mills and Boone 
um, medical romance. Well, I didn't even know what it was and I read it and enjoyed it and thought, that's just like the Flying Doctors, you know, in the nurse's home. We'd all gather on a Thursday night if we went on duty to watch the Flying Doctors, you know, and there's a long history of, you know, whether it was Doctor in the House or the Flying Doctors or ER, all that sort of stuff. Um, And... All the people in the medical community watch that because the um, the big thing is to pick the diagnosis, make the diagnosis before it's revealed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and to also to fact check maybe. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, well, you know, and I read this book and I, it was easy to read and I enjoyed it and I felt good at the end and I thought, you know what, that must be easy to write. I could write one of those. Well, of course, you know, I was completely deluded. They're very difficult to write. They and are they're very well-crafted difficult. novels yes. that pack an emotional punch in a 200 pages so that, you know, to be able to do that is a real skill. And so I was on the back foot because I've spoken to a lot of other successful um, Harlequin authors and they were raised on these books and yes. they had read them, you know, they'd read Heaps and heaps, and I'd read two. So, you know, it took me a while to work out um, the what was necessary in a book. And there's the absolute happy ending and um, internal conflict and excellent. These were all words I'd never heard of. Um, so you can do whatever you want to, but you have to give a happy ending. And so um, I channeled what I knew, all the medical stuff. That was fine. And then I reached a point where I wanted to stretch some different muscles, Mm. riding muscles. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell me about your first publishing contract. How did you get that? By um, uh, posting. <laughs> Actually, by the time I, it was email. I was I, I, I submitted and I got rejected. About, and how did you know who to submit to? Well, because of the radio interview. Because they had said on the radio that, and it was a guy from Mills and Booney, London, and he said, we read all um, the Oh, the submitted, submissions. Yeah, right? yeah. No other publishing house no. would do that. No. You well, know. they can't. It's not no. really possible. And yeah. and so they said, we read what comes yeah. in yeah. and we, you know, send us three chapters and that's the start. So that's what I did. And then I got resoundly, well, the first one I got sent the rest of the book. I'd just moved overseas. It wasn't written. So I sent that eventually and it was rejected. And then the next one was rejected. And the third one was rejected, but they were rejected with um, quite a few notes. And I didn't understand that that was actually a positive thing. <laughs> and then, so the fourth one, we got across the line. Wow. That's, see, that that's great advice for anybody, isn't it? 
Because pe- most people think you get published first time round, and, and that's just so not no, true. No, they think that, and then they think you earn a lot of money, and that's not true either. <laughs> yeah, that's not true either. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, and also I, um, it, I'd never not succeeded. So I had done well at university, and you know, this was really challenging. This was the hardest thing I'd done, and it, and I just got steely determined and said, mm. I'm going to get this across mm. the line. And so, yeah, stubborn, pig-headed yeah, takes you your places yeah. eventually. So tell me about this new book. Tell me what it's about. Well, uh, Just an Ordinary Family is about trust and uh, betrayal. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, regret and forgiveness, fertility and motherhood, uh, friendship, and the complexity of modern relationships. So it's pretty much all the usual suspects of everyday life, really. Mm-hmm. And we, I was just talking earlier, as you know, to Adele Parks, and we were talking about honesty and truth, you know, and what makes uh, good fiction. And I think that, that and in light of, of speaking to Trent Dalton last night, um, Boy Swallows Universe, because I think there's a real raw honesty about his writing as mm-hmm. well, do you think that that's true in in writing fiction? I think that the human that they're two very important elements that the human in human condition that we that we really value. Yeah. And I think that um, I think the anyone, reader picks it. Yeah, but I think that we've all been betrayed in some way. We all remember that feeling because yeah. it is very um, when your trust is broken. That's a very hard thing. Yeah. to recover from and it's in degrees you know you, the the betrayal so I, and I, so i think that people do i think we do value trust mm. and the thing about losing it is that it's incredibly hard to get it back mm. and i think when you're writing about issues that you know so you're talking about infertility i mean there there's a truth in that isn't there mm. because you've mm. had that experience yes that's right yeah, yeah. although i'm not sure that you don't have to experience absolutely everything. No. And people used to say to me, oh, you know, how can you deliver a baby when you haven't had a child? And I would say, well, everyone's labour is is different and I can have empathy. And, you absolutely. know, to be honest, pe- those women that laboured for 40 hours and had emergency caesarean sections would have hated me because I spat my first child out in four and a half hours. So... Yeah. It, you, you can have empathy. You don't have to have experienced anything. And you take one instance and, and 20 people will all experience that differently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I certainly did, though, um, channel some of my um, my infertility stuff into, into the book. But there's other things in the book that didn't happen to me and I hope will never happen to me. Yeah, of course. Uh, but, you know, then there's research and yes. there's talking to people and yeah. there's hearing. And then making that. Stories, yeah. you know, into a human story. As exactly well. right. Yeah. yeah. Do you love writing? You know, there are days I do. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, it's just turning up. Yeah. And um, sitting down and um, writing into the void. Um, I've tried to, and I find that tricky. Um, and you'll have a bad day, and then the next day is easier because at least you've got words that you can um, build on or edit. Um, I've tried really hard with the book that I'm currently writing that's out next year to to take a breath and think about, really, really think about what's happening next. But there are always times, and some sometimes that's quite clear, but there's mm. other times when you finish a scene and I've got absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And what I've learnt is they're the bridging scenes. You know where you're going, 
but you have to get there and you have to get there and be interesting and keep your reader reading and they are the most challenging scenes to write. So they're the days I don't enjoy and mm. I come down up and down the spiral staircase about 27 times and drink far too much tea and coffee. And wash um, up. Do you wash up? I oh, wash up no, as a no, distraction. Oh, no, no, no. I can avoid all housework with oh, you no can? problems whatsoever. Okay, all right. <laughs> I do. I um, I'm, I'm look for distractions. Not I'm not a major housework person, but, you know, if there's one cup on the sink, oh, that's a reason to get up. Oh, I can find <laughs> distractions, but they're never actually necessarily domestic. But, uh, and then other days when it works, it's great. But I have never had the luxury of, of, um, just all these words pouring out of me. They, yeah. That's just not, unfortunately not part of my process. And Well, you're like this then because I had Lee Child in uh, about a year ago now and he said it's still, and I don't know, I mean, he's what number book he's up to, 20-something it had to be. Uh, and he said he still sits down to start the next book and it's as hard as it was with the first. Well, that's reassuring because, yeah, yeah, it's never it, – and every book has its own difficult spot. And, and it's, it's own not, life. Uh, and it's not in the same place. Yeah. Sometimes books start well, although mine never do. I mean, I always struggle to start. Um, Is I that used... funny? Because I think as a reader a lot of authors struggle with endings. Yes, my endings are normally very clear in my head, but, yeah. but the start is challenging. Yeah. Um, coming up with a story idea I, is is challenging. I I read a, I read the newspapers, I read magazines, I listen to podcasts, I talk to yeah. people, I um, and I write down a whole mess of things and then try and pull something out of that. Occasionally, I've had a brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, I think you know, with home fires, um, I had had so much um, on the edge of fire yeah. all my life that that it became a point where I just had to write the book. Um, What about, um, uh, well, I guess in Victoria you've suffered as much as we have in terms of fires. What are your view on that? Well, um, I wrote Home Fires um, because of a a series of, yes, the 2000 and, uh, well, I mean, my mother was involved in the 1939 fires. I, as a student nurse in the um, 80s, was involved in the Ash Wednesday fires and that was, that's, um, has never left me, nurse, nursing mm. um, the Burns victims. That was horrendous. Mm. And uh, and then um, in the 2009, my uh, son was evacuated from school due to the fires. And then 2015, there was uh, on the coast, just in my back garden, Christmas Day and mm. lawn was evacuated. And that's when I said to my husband, I have to write a book about fires. Um, and so that's set 18 months after a bushfire has raised a town. And mm. it's a story about trauma and grief and hope and recovery and resilience. And for, as, as, as devastating as these fires have been recently, the loss of life has been minimal because of what we learnt in the 2009 fires and the Royal Commission. I mean, the wildlife has suffered horrendously. horrendously. But, and we've lost 700 homes between three states, but, um, but the loss of life, it's tragic as it is, but it's, it's a lot less. We had 139 people die in Black Saturday. In just the one small area. And I think we're under 20, yeah. But, yeah. which is awful mm. for the people who died, don't get me wrong, but, you know. So, um, but it's definitely, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote Home Fires was because um, in 2015 I went, you know, it's never going to go away and no. it's changing. And that's why I wrote it because because fire is changing because we're drier. Mm. So We're certainly seeing that, yeah. aren't we? 
Yeah. Mm. And what I also wrote, the reason I also wrote it and I started it 18 months after the fire is because I believe that the community is very aware of the immediate post-fire. But within four weeks, it'll be off the um, front page and people will be getting on with their lives. And they don't realise that those people, it's it's five to ten year recovery period. It's a long time, that, isn't and it? And so I dealt with the issues. I mean, it isn't just the grief and trauma of perhaps losing a loved one. It's also the fact that um, you are probably put into massive debt because although your house was insured and you get the money, if you want to rebuild in an area that's been rezoned for fire, you you're the cost of your house goes up up to $150,000 in a heartbeat for the ember guards, for the special windows, for the shutters, for all this other stuff. And so people are, they can't sell because no one wants to buy the block, but they can't build because they've got this shortfall. And then they've got planning and they're in living in caravans and containers for up to four years. Mm, terrible, isn't it? So that's why I wrote the book. I felt it's a, it's it's an a very Australian story, mm. home fires, and I deal with everyone in the book has a different issue. Um, so it's called a, kind of like a microcosm of looking at what fire-affected communities deal mm. with. And you focus a lot um, with your stories on communities and small communities. I do. Is that why do you do that? Because community is why we why we live. Uh, humans mm. are social beings, so we, we want to be connected and we want to gather. And, uh, and even if it's not necessarily a good experience, you still want to be there, don't you? That's right. And and we, I mean, you know, a commu- community is, is good and bad. It lifts mm. us up. It pulls us down. It's no really different from families. Mm. Um, but there's an awful lot of positives and social connectedness is what we need. And social connectedness is um, very protective for um, our mental health. Mm. Yeah, so no, I, agree. I explore I that. agree. Well, I think that people should pick up your book, um, Just an Ordinary Family, um, because even though it is full of um, some sadness um, and uh, it's compelling, um, it's a great read and it's unputdownable. Oh, Fiona Lowe, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.